This is Very Bold Radio and Podcast with your host, Steve Teal, bringing encouragement through God's Word and through inspiring interviews. Go to VeryBold.com for information and updates and email Steve at VeryBold.com. And now here's your host, Steve Teal. KSLR AM 630, The Word. Steve Teal here. We are celebrating our one-year birthday today. And I just want to let you guys know I appreciate you all. And I appreciate you because we have so many interviews and teaching that go a little bit long. And I know it's got to be frustrating for some of you that you're not catching all of it. And maybe for some of you, you're celebrating that you don't have to hear all of my teaching. I'm kidding. You love me and I love you. But I want to tell you that today, if you're listening, this is going to go long. I'm going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus today. I'm going to do it from a completely different angle, and I'm not sure you're going to get it if you don't listen to the whole thing. So KSLR listeners, email me, steve at verybold.com. I'm going to say that again, steve at verybold.com. Not very old, although I feel it sometimes. Verybold.com. I will send you a link so that you can hear the entire uh, podcast or broadcast as we go. So um, I want to get into it and give me a second. And we are continuing the radio show. Thank you for celebrating our one year on KSLR. Um, Great team up here. Really appreciate them a ton. All right, listeners, viewers, I want to talk the resurrection of Jesus today, but from a different angle. Sometimes a different perspective is a fresh perspective. I'm going to need you to track with me today because the resurrection of Jesus is central to our Christian faith. Without the resurrection of Jesus, our faith dies a hopeless, tragic, and sad death. Paul himself said, if Christ hasn't been risen, then what's the point? If Christ hasn't been risen, Paul goes on to say, then we are to be pitied more than anyone. You can't have Christianity without the risen Jesus Christ. Now, the good news is the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is solid. You look at it, it builds a case. There are great books that can point you to that evidence, though my favorite is The Case for the Resurrection by Dr. Gary Habermas. He has been on, we've had him on Beacon Radio. We haven't yet had him on Very Bold Radio. And he is the foremost expert on Jesus' resurrection in the world. Yes, I would have loved to have him on today, but we'll have him on another time. What's that like to be the foremost expert on Jesus' resurrection in the world? Let me tell you something. Anybody who believes in Jesus has crossed over from death to life. And if they are in the presence of God today, they are way more experts than Gary Habermas or me or you on Jesus' resurrection. Listen, I want to tell you real quick, if you have Jesus, if you've given your life to Jesus, you have nothing to be afraid of. You have crossed over from death to life. You have nothing to fear. Doesn't mean we want to be stupid. Doesn't want to, doesn't mean we want to be unwise. It just means we have nothing to be afraid of. He is with us, whether it is good, bad, ugly, terrible, tragic. He is with us and he is a God who pulls beauty out of the ugliest things. I hope you've experienced that in your life. That's the power of Jesus. All right. 
like I said, I interviewed Gary Habermas. We got we to gotta take that into consideration. That book, though, The Case for the Resurrection, that is a good book. You can find it on Amazon. It's a great book. It's an important book. But I want to take a different perspective. I want to consider what if Jesus hadn't been resurrected three days later. Now, you've got to track with me. If you're multitasking right now, you're going to miss the point. You just heard me declare and say the resurrection of Jesus is central. But I want to think skeptics or those who don't believe right now, there is enough historical evidence that things changed History changed. A new movement was born. Now, someone who does not currently believe would need to come up with reasons why a group would say that a teacher who was killed and crucified the Romans' cruelest way, and as a criminal, why would they say he was resurrected from the dead? If they don't believe and they just think there's a conspiracy that they developed— and we're talking about not just resuscitated or brought back to life as Christians say that Lazarus was. He died later on. He was brought back to life, but he did not receive a resurrected body. But we're talking about these Christians saying that Jesus conquered death, had a new body, indestructible, imperishable, incorruptible, immune to virus, immune to sickness and anything else. So I want to look at Easter or Resurrection Sunday, trying to imagine that as some people who would deny the resurrection because it's impossible, I want to look at it from the standpoint of, well, how might the initial group of believers come up with a plan, either devious and deceitful or brilliant as conspirators? How would they come up with that? I want to imagine if you listen to my Simple Man Bible study teaching here, I am a simple man here on Very Bold Radio and Podcast, but you know I like to imagine. I like to get into somebody's uh, skin and viewpoint and just imagine. So then I would ask, as we imagine through this, I would say, does it seem reasonable and likely or unlikely that this conspiracy would develop? Again, you know where I'm going. Even if you're a skeptic, you know that I believe. I've got my reasons, but I just want to imagine what might they have come up with and why. Uh, so, again, it's hypothetical, but my idea here is that if this group of women and the closest men believers of Jesus came up with a conspiracy, a fraud that Jesus was alive, <laughs> I want to tell you this. They would rank among the worst conspirators ever. They are terrible at it. If this was a conspiracy, I'll walk you through that. Let's start with, according to our Christian documents, and yes, I'm preaching to the choir for the most part, but according to our Christian documents and Jewish documents, too, that the non-believing Jews of the day claimed that some of the disciples came in the middle of the night, Saturday night on the timeline, and stole the dead body of Jesus from the tomb, then proceeded to proclaim that Jesus was risen from the dead. So if you know your Bible stories, if you know your stories of Good Friday, if you know that, then you know there are some questions here. So there are some questions that rise with that, aren't there? First of all, these disciples are terrified. When Jesus was arrested, they all scattered. 
when Jesus was arrested and Simon Peter tried to watch from a distance, a slave girl says, hey, are you one of his followers? Now you remember what happened. Simon Peter swore three times, I don't even know the man. He throws out curses to make his point. And then we have John and the women at the foot of the cross who watched Jesus listen to him suffer and die. What we can know confidently about what is written is that this group of people demonstrate on Sunday and throughout this ordeal fear, fear for their lives. They're in a place where on Sunday the doors are locked. I want you to understand they're coming from a tremendous position of weakness at this point. So how do a few of the apostles who have been terrified decide to show up at the tomb, find the soldiers asleep, walk in between these sleeping soldiers, they walk in between these sleeping soldiers and then somehow roll away the stone locked in place without one of these trained, highly professional sleeping soldiers waking up. All right. Let's say that happens. They move the giant stone away, go in and find the lifeless body of Jesus. They walk back out carrying it and take it to the place where they are staying. What happens then? They have the lifeless dead body of their hero slash teacher in front of them. One of the apostles speaks up and says, hey, let's pretend he's risen from the dead. This is the first question I want to ask. Okay, why? Like, why do that at this point? No one ever thought to do that when Moses died. Those people were just like, man, Moses was a great prophet of God, and now he's in the presence of God. It's over. No one ever thought with King David, hey, let's pretend he rose from the dead. Why would these apostles I'm not saying that this little idea will convince non-believers. I'm just starting with the question of why. At that point, if Jesus' lifeless body, dead body, was lying in front of them, they would indeed think what a tragedy that this prophet is dead. And later on, you see a reference when they think he is dead. They are now just calling him he was a great prophet. But at that point... In fear for their lives and intimidated and having firsthand seen Jesus beaten, tortured, crucified, why? Why invent a story that claims he's risen from the dead? What would be the motivation? Now, honestly, at this point, I am open to your ideas. If you're, you're a skeptic, I would love to hear what you think the motivation might be. If you're not a skeptic, if you're a believer, I just want you to think from the other side, what could be the motives for why they would do this at this point? Could it be, and I'm not even going to go through all the ones I want to hear from you guys, but could it be revenge? Like we'll show the Romans and the Jews for killing our teacher. We'll pull one over on them. And then each one of us will be killed eventually for it. Each one of us, oh, except John, who gets banished to Patmos, each one will suffer a terrible death themselves. Okay, you're right. They didn't yet know that they would all be killed for it, but they had just seen their teacher killed for it in the most unimaginable, cruel fashion there was. They had just seen that. It's not like 10 years have passed and they thought, hey, 
man, I'm kind of bored. What if we just said Jesus was alive? No, this was fresh in their minds. They had seen it. What about this? Maybe they'll get rich in the process. Money's always a good motive, right? And I don't mean good in the sense that you're thinking. I mean, that's a motive for for things. Okay, well, from history and tradition, there seems much more evidence that the apostles were poor and certainly didn't get rich for it. Even if they lived comfortable lives, which no one who reads the Apostle Paul's documents, come on, you've got to twist the scripture to come out of there saying, yeah, Paul was a wealthy man, please. Well, if you do, I mean, no one, well, no one should suggest that his life was a life of comfort. You'd have to twist really big to make it so. Okay, let's imagine the choices for a few of the apostles. The fishermen who were the core four, or at least the core three of the 12 apostles. When Jesus called them to follow him in the beginning of his ministry, they seemed to be successful business partners in the fishing business. They seemed to be entrepreneurs, businessmen that were doing just fine. I don't have a lot of arguments for it. It just seems that way. Now, later on in this 40-day period where we believe Jesus made at least 12 resurrection appearances, according to our documents, at least 12, Peter and some of the boys were back fishing, not for a weekend retreat or just to forget about their troubles, not for a getaway. I mean, this situation was a brother's got to eat. Peter had a wife. He was back in business, folks. Read John 21. You're going to see what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is that in this case, it doesn't seem that Peter displays much of a, hey, there's no way I'm going back to what I grew up doing and was successful at. It doesn't seem to this simple man at this point that there is a strong motive for Peter to create a lie rather than just go back to what he was successful doing in the first place. I mean, think about it. At this point, Jesus is dead. You can decide to come up with a plan to try to fool everybody, but what you risk is the death that your teacher just suffered. You risk punishment, torture, and death, or you can go back to Galilee and get back into a business where you were successful. At the lake, you just go back to work, which is what Peter did in John 21, something you've done all your life. Now, I'm sure most of us have had jobs that if given the choice, you wouldn't want to go back to. But what if your two choices were to either perpetuate a lie that could get you killed or go back to that job? Now we're kind of limiting the choices. Which one would you go for? If Jesus is dead, lifeless before you, and you could contrive a story that he defeats death by his resurrection, or you can just go back to a successful job, well, which one is more likely? Again, you're thinking through the other lens, and you're trying to think through, well, maybe he didn't. But remember also, he's afraid for his life. And honestly, the portraits that we have of him, he's looked like a coward. Yes, I get it. At one point, he was ready to take on the army. He was ready to slice Malchus in two, put Mal on one side and cuss on the other side, as I heard a preacher one time say. But then soon after that, man, he is cowering before a slave girl, a young slave girl, saying, denying Jesus Christ three times. So he's afraid. Come on, remember this. And this is fresh, not 10 years later. So what would motivate him at this point? 
All right, you could say this. Maybe he was stupid. I mean, I don't think Peter was stupid, but maybe he was and thought he could get rich. Your master is dead. Your teacher is dead. And maybe you're thinking, but I can do something with this. But at what point in your ministry moving forward of that lie would you realize, well, that was stupid. I came up with a big lie. And if Peter's life resembled Paul's at all, then he chose a life of difficult suffering, opposition, hardships, hatred, beatings. I'm not saying that it's impossible that he would have decided to try that. I'm saying, suggesting that maybe through all that suffering, maybe he would think, you know what, it's just not worth it. Maybe. I don't know. I'm just trying to imagine. So successful businessman who can just go back to his life and job on the lake or or this, this thing. But let's put that aside for now because we're trying to imagine how this plot to defraud the public and mislead people might have come about. Let's imagine that Saturday sometimes sometime the apostles decide that they will steal the body of Jesus overnight. One of them has to be the one to say, hey, guys, I got an idea. Let's pretend that he rises from the dead tomorrow. All right, it has to start with one, and then he's got to convince at least 10 other men and several women that this is a solid idea, too. But we've got to, he would say, come up with a perfect plan that we can all stick together on. So let's add it up. Let's say at this point, Judas is out of the picture. We've got a team of 11 men, plus some of the women that have supported Jesus' ministry and wanted to give him a proper burial. They're gathered together. So I don't, I don't know exactly, but I feel like 15 to 20 people easy are together. So they need a perfect plan in order to pull this off. I believe to pull this off, you would want a tight circle. I think 15 to 20 is really hard to pull off. I don't think it's ideal right from the start. It seems a little on the big side to keep 15 to 20 people compelled to continue the same lies. But I think maybe if it was just Peter, James, and John, three, at least the thing has a shot. But it's too late because we've already got all these people hanging out, 15 to 20, conservatively, right, at this point. So you've got to create the perfect story. What would you do? Again, it's Saturday late night or early morning Sunday. You've just stolen the body of Jesus under this hypothetical situation. Sunday morning is coming. You have a decision to make right now. The first one is this. When do we say Jesus rose from the dead? If we say today, Sunday morning, we need to come up with our stories fast. If it had been me, I would have tried to hide the body and worked out our stories together, not in a big rush. Okay. At uh, some points, I'm going to be talking through the apostles. I'm going to be using Peter's voice just to imagine this. So now, if this is going to be one big lie, one big conspiracy, this is Steve. I want to suggest, again, that if this is the case, that these are some of the worst conspirators the world has seen. And KSLR listeners, if you're just tuning in, please understand, I believe the evidence points towards a risen Christ and not some misguided plot that somehow fooled people. You're getting that, I hope. We are just trying to imagine what some would suggest happened, a conspiracy plot to pretend that Jesus had risen from the dead. So, okay, back to our plan to deceive and lie so that they can live in fear for the rest of their lives rather than going back to their homes and their jobs. How do you construct this story? 
How do they, and let's think about it, how do we for them say that Jesus appeared as a risen Lord to us? Let's go with the easiest way to pull this off and stick together. Here we are gathered, at least 11 of us, and more likely up to 20, no problem. Let's imagine we are brainstorming. We, we buy into that one person who throws out this crazy idea of let's pretend Jesus is risen. What's the best way we can keep our stories the same? I want to tell you, this is me. I'm not a professional liar. I'm not much of an amateur liar, really, or even a social psychologist, even though that was my favorite college class, actually. But I'm going to suggest that the best plan would be the simple plan. It's not just because I'm the simple man. The simple plan would be one story, one occasion, not 12 different resurrection experiences and events. Just one story keeps it simple, so we keep the story the same. No one veers off the script. We're all here together. Right now, we pretend that Jesus, risen from the dead, came into this room. He appeared once right here, okay? Now, what do we come up with to convince people that he is God? Well, think about it. Think about if you'd you'd probably want to come up with some sort of powerful demonstration like he's never done before because nobody has seen a risen Christ before. So you would imagine something probably bigger than what actually happened. You'd probably want your best creatives on it to come up with something you see Jesus do or hear Jesus say that would just blow people away. In my opinion, it would need to be big and impressive. What could you come up with if you were just inventing this theory? As long as the people in the room all agree, yes, that's our story, then you're golden. Then what? What's your motivation at this point? Again, to me, it seems to be lacking. I'm open to what you come up with. So then you would go hide the dead body, try to bury it somewhere and tell people, hey, Jesus is alive. And you start telling one story. You don't want to tell several stories because they can get confused. You might mix your storylines and it becomes a convoluted mess. Again, I'm no expert, but that's what I'm thinking. Maybe you do have better ideas on how they could pull this off. Here's the thing. As you're thinking and disagreeing with me on how this would best happen, we're, we're agreeing and disagreeing. What about a group of 15 to 20 people that are agreeing and disagreeing about how they would plot this conspiracy, how they would propel it forward? So what are the odds those 15 to 20 people could come up with one scenario? So in this hypothetical scenario, all these 15 to 20 people do not go with my idea, which is to keep it simple. One story of Jesus' resurrection. Out of all those people, they all agree to make it complex, maybe. Maybe they thought the other way. I can hear you think, social psychology. Maybe they thought the liar's truth. The more details you add, the more likely people will believe you. Maybe, maybe, but man, throwing together 12 stories of a resurrection, if you're going to have 12 stories, you better make them all good, and they're not the way it's written. Okay. Maybe let's consider this. Peter is such a strong leader. He is, even though he did just cower in front of a slave girl the other night. Uh, maybe such a strong leader that no one can stand up to him in this meeting of 15 or 20. He just steamrolls ahead. And anyone thinking like me, he just tells us, no, we need to make it more 
complicated. He says, we are going to make this thing multiple levels. Here's the plan. We've got the lifeless body of Jesus, but we'll send somebody to the grave, to the tomb, and we'll say that they meet the risen Jesus there. This is what the conspiracy would have to be. You'd have to come up with this plan of, all right, how are these appearances gonna going to be? We'll say a person goes to the grave and they meet the risen Jesus there. Well, the next question is 15 or 20 people. Okay, who should that be? We could take the whole group. That's what I would vote. Why not do that? Let's all go, and then we'll say we saw Jesus there. And Peter says, again, imagining that he's running this meeting and it's just his plan or the highway, his way or the highway. Peter says, no, we need just one person to see Jesus first. Well, that's a weird idea because Jesus has even affirmed from the Hebrew scriptures that everything should be established with at least one or two witnesses. So we're talking two or three people. So maybe imagine Andrew, the more introverted thinker, but who loves his brother Peter a lot, wants to throw some support behind his idea, says Peter, it should be you. If you're convinced that it should be one person, it should be you. You're the clear-cut leader of this group. And besides, people are going to circulate the story that you denied knowing Jesus three times to a slave girl. This will be a nice bounce back, kind of create a new narrative for you. We'll send you, you come back, you describe the encounter however you want. Now that has some appeal if you want to just have a single person witness Jesus risen from the dead first. But Peter says, no, Andrew, I don't think so. It should be a woman. Now John speaks up. Peter, let me remind you that it's the first century, not the 21st century. Peter, let me remind you that a woman's testimony is not legal in a court of law. John says, now, me personally, I love these women, but just if we want to convince Jews and even Romans that Jesus is risen from the dead, I am certain that the first eyewitness should not be a woman. So what do we imagine? Peter is so grouchy that he cannot be reasoned with. Everything John said is true, you know. You should have more than one eyewitness. And in the first century, they should be men if you're coming up with this. But Peter says, no, that's dumb. It's going to be a woman. I'm convinced. Now then, who should it be? Now, let's say John is tired of arguing the point with Peter. So the other guy known as Son of Thunder, his brother James, speaks up. Doesn't sound very mild-mannered, does he? Son of Thunder. Look, Peter, you're out of your mind. But if you really think it needs to be a woman, well, I mean, there is one clear choice out of these women. Peter says, good, now we're on the same page. James, son of thunder, says, this is ridiculous and no offense to the women, but it has to be Joanna. Think about it. Her husband is the manager of Herod's household. I mean, talk about credibility. If you want to choose a woman, it has to be Joanna. Peter says, no, that's stupid. Why would we pick someone with credibility? We need to pick someone that might be viewed as a liability. Joanna is way too safe a choice. We need someone that really no one would listen to. Brother Andrew says, Peter, I love you, man, but who in the world are you thinking we should say? Peter says, Mary Magdalene. Andrew shakes his head, and there's even a groan among the group. Simon, Peter, no. Remember, it wasn't that long ago she had seven evil spirits possessing her. That's not a stellar reputation among people. Peter says, yes, but Jesus delivered her her from those demons. 
At this point, I want to suggest that the group would just say, forget it. But if this was the lie, a conspiracy and fraud that they carried out, that is exactly how it played out. Mary Magdalene, a woman who might be easy to slander as mentally unbalanced with her past, becomes the first witness to Jesus' risen Savior. Now let's construct the story further. Okay, it's Mary Magdalene. Weird choice. Agreed. Okay, let's write her story she's going to tell in that room. Andrew, you take a shot at it. Okay, Mary Magdalene shows up. Jesus is alive, and he's lifting the giant stone over his head, and he says, I am God. And Mary's blinded by the light, and there's thousands upon thousands of angels just singing and celebrating. Just imagine as many as possible. And then she falls over, and she says, my Lord and my God. James and John and Thomas are all nodding their heads. Seems solid. We want it to be convincing. I love all the angels. I love Jesus showing his strength. Peter's like, no, 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 no. You're thinking way too direct. It needs to be a little confusing. Your story has way too much clarity. What? What are you thinking, Peter? Peter's like, hold on, hold on. I'm thinking, boys. I'm thinking. I've, I've got it. Mary Magdalene, you show up by yourself. You see just two angels, and then they're, they're gone. They're done. You turn, and you make a mistake. You think, you think that the risen Lord who had defeated death and risen from the dead in an indestructible, imperishable body is, wait for it, the gardener. Andrew would be like, oh, my gosh, what now? Peter goes on, yeah, and you will talk to him but not realize it's Jesus who just conquered death and Satan and sin. Mary Magdalene says, okay, what do I say happens next? You ask Jesus who you think is the gardener to tell you where he's taken the body. Oh, okay, and what happens next? Peter says you're going to love this personal touch. He will call you by name. Jesus, who you think is the gardener, will say Mary. Now, Mary Magdalene is feeling it. She jumps in. Her imagination is starting to stir. I'll say, my Lord and my God, and he'll, like, point out his finger to me and levitate me. I mean, we got to do something, right? Peter's like, no, 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 no levitation. We don't need something impressive. No, no, no. You just say teacher. Teacher? Yes, teacher. But don't I even proclaim that Jesus is God? No, no, no. Just say teacher. Okay, Mary Magdalene says, so in our fabricated story, do I then bring Jesus to you all, like right here in this room? Peter says, no, of course not. We need to bring in some other people. Now Matthew speaks up, great. Now we bring in you, Peter, James, John, Thomas. Peter, nope, wrong again. We need some more women that no one will believe. James says, totally weird, but so they come to us and tell us about Jesus and we say, of course he's alive. He told us so many times he would be crucified, buried, and raised on the third day. We knew it. We're not surprised at all. Jesus said it and we believed it. John jumps in. See, yeah, that's the way to paint this story. Don't paint Peter as a coward. Don't paint Peter as a coward. Don't portray the rest of us as weak in faith and running away and scared. We need to be on board all the way. We've got to go from a position of strength, sons of thunder. Peter's like, no, 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 no. I've got the perfect plan. In our story, the women come to us and we don't believe them. We think they're out of their minds. Wait, what, Peter? But that makes us look pretty stupid. I don't want to look like an idiot. No, it's, it's right. Now I've got appearance number three. Jesus appears to me, Peter says, just me. 
All right, Peter, tell us what happens. How does he appear to you? What happens? Peter says, that's not important. We'll just say he did, and that's it. Oh, my gosh, Peter, you're killing us here. So that's three stories. We can keep it straight. We're done with it. Peter says, no, we need Jesus to appear to a couple of men now. Matthew and Thomas both raised their hands. We'll do it. We can handle that. We'll say we're walking back to the house. We went out for some food, and Jesus met us. Again, we think there should be some angels, a lot of them, thousands. And he was a huge, giant Jesus, and we believed and said, you are God, there is no other, you've conquered death, whatever we need to say. Peter says, no, 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 not you guys. No, not like that. We need someone that no one really knows well. Everyone knows you guys are like the first team. We need someone obscure. And someone who's not even here, let's expand our circle of conspiracy. I know, Cleopas. Who? Cleopas. I heard he and a buddy, I'm not even sure who, left Jerusalem and was going to Emmaus. And we'll imagine that Jesus appears with them. Is he going to be giant Jesus? No, no, no. Just Jesus. But they won't even recognize him. They'll walk for miles without realizing. And they'll talk about the scriptures being fulfilled. And they won't realize it until Jesus is about to continue on. And they'll say, just stay and eat some dinner with us. And when Jesus breaks the bread, this is going to be so good, guys, so poetic. That's when they'll realize he is the risen Lord. All right. Look, I'm going to close this thing off pretty soon here. Listeners, I'm I'm passed out of time here. If you look at the 12 listed resurrection appearances, I think you'll see if it's a conspiracy and a fraud, it is a weak one. I don't know if you get the point, but if this thing was a conspiracy, a lie, a deception, these guys were the worst at making up the right story. It just goes on and on, and that's just stopping at three. Instead of impressive, big, giant Jesus doing big gob tricks with all these angels, What convinces them that Jesus is not a ghost? It's eating fish with them. It's cooking dinner for them. It's Jesus saying, I'm not a ghost. Does a ghost have flesh and bones? Look, just touch. Hey, Thomas, see my wounds? Put your hand in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Keep a conspiracy small, I think, is the way to go. Read 1 Corinthians 15. Christians claimed from the very beginning that Jesus appeared Did you hear me from the very beginning that Jesus appeared to over 500 at one time? When Paul was writing 1 Corinthians 15, he said, man, talk to them. And let me tell you something. When he wrote what he said in 1 Corinthians 15, that information, that teaching, that creed had been delivered to him within a year of Jesus' death and resurrection. We're talking about a creed that didn't come 25 years later, which is when Paul is writing the Corinthians. We're talking about within a year that they were proclaiming over 500 people at one time saw him. Paul, writing 25 years later, says, hey, most of these people are still alive. A few of them are dead, but the rest, you know what's implied? You ask them about the risen Jesus. The icing on the cake could be Paul who the first year of Christianity absolutely tried to destroy it, arresting people, celebrating when Stephen was killed. How, in this conspiracy, how did these people convince Paul to become a believer who would establish churches, travel all over, and die for it? But to me, Paul's not even the icing on the cake. How, 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 please tell me how in the world 
Do you apostles convince Jesus' brother James to become a part of this conspiracy? Do you remember? He thought Jesus was out of his mind earlier. He thought he was just a heretic out for fame and attention. The cross comes and goes, and we have no idea if James felt any pity for his heretic brother or thought, serves him right. I tried to tell him. What we do know is at some point, and it was taught to Christians everywhere in the beginning of the movement, Jesus appeared to James. Jesus appeared to James. What we do know, even if you don't believe in those resurrection appearances, is that James became a pillar in the church of Jerusalem, that James walked away and became a Christian, a believer, and he died for it. And that's not even according to Christian documents. That's according to Josephus, the Jewish historian. James died for his beliefs in Jesus, the same guy. The only thing that was going to convince James that Jesus was the Messiah, I'm pretty sure it's Jesus appearing to him risen from the dead. It goes on and on, people. I barely scratched the surface of what a terrible plan this was if this was all a big lie. Now, for me, the messy little details of the resurrection, the embarrassing failures of the apostles to just believe their continued resistance and doubts, the strange details ring so true and authentic that for me it points to truth. All of those add up and take me to the empty tomb, to the risen Christ, to real eyewitness accounts that Jesus rose from the dead, kicked death in the rear end, knocked Satan down, defeated sin, rose from the dead, conquered all, forgave you and me, and is at the right hand of God the Father now. Now, it's true. I didn't have to think through all of those scenarios to come to faith in Jesus. Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus. Jesus met me on the D.C. Beltway to Springfield, Virginia. Oh, it was a different experience than Paul's for sure, but it was real and it changed my life. And listen, I don't want to die for my faith, but I will if that's what God wills. You don't have to have it all sorted out either, though, for some of you. Some of you truth seekers, at least look at some of the evidence. At least go and find a free Bible app and look at the end of the Gospels. And again, if I had more time, if I had a couple hours, I'd talk about all these things that are just not right about how they would have contrived this plot. But Matthew, he includes a detail that doesn't fit, but go to the end of his Gospel. Mark, don't even get me started on Mark, who barely even alludes to the resurrection Luke, he does a pretty good job, though there's some craziness in there. And John, of course. Go to the end and read those. Come up with those 12 different appearances. Read Acts as well and 1 Corinthians 15. Look for yourself. Do yourself a favor as you're doing it. Ask Jesus for some help. And those of you who already believe and are just trying to figure out why I'm trying to come up with this conspiracy theory, I'm trying to understand from the other side because it just doesn't add up to me as a conspiracy. It just continues to add up as the truth. And I'm so grateful that Jesus reveals himself. You know, Paul wasn't looking for the truth when Jesus just showed up and blew him away. And I don't know your situation today. I don't know if you're a believer who needs to pray for somebody who's like a Paul who hasn't yet met the risen Christ. I don't know if you are struggling and searching for answers or just not sure going through some doubts, but Jesus wants to assure you and speak to you. He wants you to know. 
He wants you to know how much he loves you and what he did for you. And he wants you to know that he had to die for you and he had to rise for you. He's the risen Christ. If you're still searching, man, ask God, man, is this real? I'd like to know if this is real. You, you examine the evidence. You try to come up with your theories because, man, it's there. Jesus is alive. I love you guys. I'm praying for you. I want you to know, for those of you that already believe, we have a great, great hope. And that's what that Apostle Paul, who was not a believer, who met Jesus on the road to Damascus, came to believe, came to know for certain. And when he realized that, even though he went through shipwrecks, he went through trials, he was arrested, he was beaten, he was tortured, he was left for dead and ultimately killed. Even though he had all those things and all those insults and all those persecutions in his life, it was Paul who knew Christ, who said everything up to now, up to that point in my life when I met Jesus is garbage. I just forget all of that. I strain ahead on keep my eyes on the prize is what Paul said. And even with all those terrible things that he went through that no one chooses to go through, he said this in 2 Corinthians 3.12, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Very Bold, radio and podcast with your host, Steve Teal, bringing encouragement through God's Word and through inspiring interviews. Go to VeryBold.com for information and updates and email Steve at VeryBold.com. Steve at VeryBold.com 